Our scripture reading this morning is found from the Gospel of Luke, Luke 11, verses 14 to 26. It is printed inside of your bulletins and it is also on page 869 in one of the Bibles that you might find under your seats. If you please grab that and as you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against him, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes in and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Reading of God's word. You may be seated. We're in the thick of football season. And the Major League Baseball playoffs are among us. And honestly, there isn't much that is crazier than sports fans, right? Monday morning, you see a man in a suit and a tie looking all tidy and neat and tight when just hours before he had his shirt off with something painted on his chest and screaming at the top of his lungs. Sorry for that imagery right at the beginning of the sermon. But people do get crazy about sports, right? It's it's as if they are possessed, they are controlled by their team. And it's, uh, it's interesting that we are in the middle of spooky season and we come here to this text today uh, that Luke talks about a demon-possessed man. But this text is going to ask us over and over again this question. What possesses you? What possesses you? That is, what has ownership of you? What drives you? So if you open up your Bibles to the text, it would be helpful to see it as we're going along. We're going to see, first off, the opposition in verses 14 to 16. The opposition. And we're going to see demonic activity. So we see in verse 14 that there is a man that was demon-possessed. Now, the arrival of the kingdom of God brings in unprecedented conflict with Satan and his demons. Now, when you think about it, of the, in the 39 books of the entire Old Testament, only five of them mention Satan. And nowhere are we told of a prophet, a priest, a king, or a wise man that has ever cast out a demon. 
But as soon as Jesus is on the scene, he is in conflict with Satan, perpetual conflict, starting in the wilderness of his ministry. And it involved him casting out many demons throughout the course of his ministry. Now, there's something that's going on here with the kingdom of God coming. There's a hidden spiritual conflict that happens behind the idolatry and national conflict that we saw in the Old Testament. And it is now brought out in the open clearly in a personal battle against Jesus. Now, some may say that Jesus was in a pre-scientific era. And that's why they called these things possessions, these people being possessed by demons, even though they were, they would say, physical ailments or psychosis or something along those lines. But Jesus and the New Testament writers always make it clear and they make a distinction between someone that was sick, someone that was sad, someone that was experiencing mental disorder or someone that was possessed by a demon. So you see here, we as human beings, we are multidimensional beings. We're physical, we're psychological, we're social, we're spiritual. And because of that, our problems are multidimensional as well. There are many layers. And as such, evil has more than one form. It is personal and impersonal. It's natural and supernatural. It's human and inhuman. So we have demonic activity here and all of the forces of evil in opposition to Jesus's ministry. But we also have evil humanity. Look down at verse 14. Now, when he was casting out a demon that was mute, the demon had gone out and the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, get the picture here. There's a mute man standing before Jesus and Jesus casts the demon out of this man. And in a moment, the man can feel it. His tongue is loosed and he is able to start speaking and praising. And you can only imagine that he spoke praise and adoration to Jesus. And the text tells us that the crowd was amazed. Absolutely everyone there knew that this was a miracle. There was no doubt about it. They knew that something supernatural had taken place. There was a power that had released this man and he was now able to speak. But the Pharisees had been spreading lies and doubt among the people. The party line straight down from the top of the leaders was this. Jesus is doing these things by the power of Beelzebul. Now, this story here is very similar to one that we find in Matthew chapter 12. But I believe that this one is a different healing from the one that we see in Matthew chapter 12. In the story of that man, he was also blind, not just mute. He was also blind. Further in the story of Matthew, it took place in Galilee. And this story here in Luke takes place in Judea, which is in the southern part of Israel. And Luke, as a doctor, definitely would have told us the detail that he was both blind and mute, not just mute. Now, these are two different stories separated by months and months. You say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, they're two separate stories. The big deal is this. There's many commonalities between them. There's many things that are the same. In fact, the key is that they said, you are casting out demons by Beelzebul. So the Pharisees had this hatred of Jesus, and they proved over and over to systematically try to tear Jesus down and his ministry. This party line from them was, it's Satan. He's doing it by the power of Satan. 
Don't pay attention to him. Don't listen to what he's doing. And they murmur this all throughout the crowds. And it spreads like wildfire. You see, listen, multitudes of people were following Jesus. They loved to be able to see the miracles that they performed. They liked to come to him for a healing. And many people were following him, and actually some were being converted. They were amazed by the love that he had. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the people that should have been the first to recognize that this is the Messiah, were afraid of losing their position and their power and their clout in the community. The religious system that they had built began to crumble around them. And the epicenter for that crumbling was Jesus Christ and his teaching. They had an evil desire that was a man-made identity. And they wanted to keep that identity. They could not lose it. So they came up with this line that they continued to spread, that Jesus is doing all of this by the power of Beelzebul. Now, what is that word Beelzebul? It comes from the root of Baal. It was a word that they used to call Baal literally the Lord of the Flies. But it trickled down throughout Hebrew culture and became a name that they used to describe Satan. So put yourself in this story again. It would have been nice as if in verse 15, it would have said this. The people rejoiced with the one who had once been mute and could now talk. You know, just get around this guy and have a celebration. Put yourself in his position. You would be ecstatic. You would be beside yourself that now you could talk, but they did not care at all about this guy. How would you feel if you had just been healed and you hear people around you say, you were only healed by the power of Satan? Imagine this. Humans using other humans' circumstances for political and social or religious gain. Nah, we're too sophisticated for that, aren't we? (laughs) But we see it all the time. And the only one loving this man right now is the one that they are calling a partner with Satan. Now this was calculated blasphemy. To say that Jesus is the only one doing miracles because he is in a partnership with Satan. Now, not everyone was saying this or thinking this. Some of them were actually testing him by asking him for a sign from heaven, as if everything that he had already done in front of them wasn't enough. They wanted some sort of cosmic miracle. And this may not seem that it's that bad, really, but Jesus says later, just in this chapter, that it is a wicked and perverse generation that asks for a sign. So these people here are teetering on the edge of eternity with their blasphemy. But Jesus is patient, he is gracious, and he is merciful to them. And he wouldn't let them continue on in this blasphemy without a gracious warning. Showing them that in order to reject him, they would need to toss out all of their religious teaching, all of their religious sensibilities, gone out of the window. They would need to ignore common sense and even... Normal logic. So let's look at that secondly. The logic, verses 17 to 19. Again, Jesus responds mercifully here to them. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay? The blasphemy that you are throwing at me is irrational. It's inconsistent and it lacks common sense. You have to rethink what you're saying here. And think about the gravity of what you're saying. I mean, seriously, can you imagine if you were Jesus and some of the people had just said that you were in cahoots with Satan and that the only power that you had to be able to do miracles was the power of Satan? 
Now, if I were Jesus, I would have just said, and you're done. Zap. Gone. (laughs) But Jesus' ministry here is characterized by this full court press against the kingdom of darkness. He was literally undoing Satan's destructive work in people's lives. So to say that they're on the same team does not make any sense at all. Again, imagine the setting. No one shouted out, he's doing this from Beelzebub. They were mentioning it back, back and forth to themselves, whispering. And some of them that spoke out loud asked him for another sign. So imagine you're one of these people. And then Jesus begins to speak. Look down in verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, can you imagine being one of the ones that whispered it? Or one of the ones that thought it? You're like, oh, did I, did I just say that out loud? Did that just happen? But the first word picture that Jesus uses here is that of a divided kingdom. You see, no team, no business, no house, no army, no movement can survive an internal war. History has proven this over and over and over again. It's just not possible. But then he goes on further to say, well, if I cast them out by Beelzebub, please tell me how your followers are casting out demons. What's your answer? Because they're going to judge you based upon the answer that you give. He says you're being inconsistent here. You see, some of the Pharisees and students of the Pharisees had followers that were actually able to cast out demons. And many people believed that they did it by the power of God. So Jesus is saying, are you saying that your followers here are on Satan's team too? Because you can't say that they're doing it by God's power and that I'm not doing it. And Jesus paints them into a corner here. It's beautiful because they have to make a response. And what's the response they make? I think we're done talking. They keep their mouths shut. So let's talk about them thirdly, this power, the power, verses 20 to 22. Jesus continues to draw a line in the sand, reminding people that there are two options available. And he lays it out plainly before them. Look at the text in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and the assumption is, yes, that is what's doing it. He says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this allusion to the finger of God brings something back to our minds, and it certainly would have brought something back to the the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember the scriptural account of when Moses was delivering delivering the Israelites from the hands of Egypt, and he went to the Pharaoh, and he had a lot of signs and miracles that he did? Remember this story? He's delivering God's people from the hand of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's magicians come to Pharaoh and say, This is the finger of God. So Jesus again taps into this picture saying, I have the same delivering power and it is done with the same ease. Just a finger. It's not the strong arm of the Lord that you read about in the Psalms. It's just a finger. Just the finger of God. It's amazing power and it proved that the kingdom of God had come. So instead of slandering and blaspheming Jesus, they should have asked for his forgiveness and responded in worship. But we like to hold on to our stuff, right? As humans, we just want it. So Jesus responds with another little story. Look down at verse 21. 
when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Now, this is a picture of a well-armed castle, not just a house. It's a well-armed castle. This strong lord is concerned with maintaining and protecting his estate. And being a strong man, he had a lot of local power and clout and protection. And he had a lot of possessions that he had to secure. Until someone stronger came along and attacked. Now, who is the strong man? Who is the well-armed Lord? Class? Satan. All right? Satan is the strong man. And then in sweeps this stronger man, Jesus. In steps Jesus and takes the people that are in Satan's clutches, and he is still in the business of rescuing people that same way today. Jesus is Satan's most powerful enemy. And do not think that this is some spiritual fairy tale or some folklore. Because the devil prowls around seeking whom he may devour. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces that are stronger than we could ever imagine. So Jesus is the stronger man and he is saying, come ye sinners, come and behold the wondrous mystery that we just sang about earlier. And with every action, he is loosening the grip that Satan has on souls. There's a great illustration in Acts 19, in verse 11 and 12 of Acts 19. We see Paul performing extraordinary miracles by the power of God. In fact, he is casting out evil spirits. So the Jewish exorcists come along and they see Paul doing this. And they're like, whoa, we have never seen power like this. This is amazing. We need to figure out what he's doing here. We have not seen the power of God really cast these demons out just like this in the past. You know, they had seen some sort of uh, deliverance from some people, but, you know, demons are demons. They don't care. It's deception one way or deception another. But these exorcists, these Jewish exorcists had never seen the power of God like this. So like, oh, okay, we're going to use this formula. And if you check it out there in Acts 19, you see this. They stole what they thought was a formula, and they said, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And you can kind of hear it in that kind of fake, we're going through the robotic voice. And look there at verses 14 in Acts 19. There was a group, and a man named Sceva had seven sons. And this is really sad, but it's really hilarious at the same time. And he was the main leader of these people that used to make money by casting out these demons. And they started using this formula. And then look at verse 15. The demon responds, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now, they knew about divine power. The demons did. They knew that when they were confronted by the power of God, they could not survive. And they knew that this man's voice was not the power of God. So in verse 16, the man in whom there was an evil spirit leaped out on top of the seven sons of Sceva and subdued all of them, overpowered them, so they ran out of the house naked and wounded. I would say that they didn't have a high degree of success in their exorcisms. But this was the typical stuff of the day. And then in comes Jesus and the kingdom of God, and with merely a finger, 
he can take out this strong man. So what possesses you? Is it this power? Is it this power that we're looking at, this great power? But wait, there's still more in this text. So let's look finally at the application, verses 20 to 26. What is this text all about? Now, it's not trying to teach us how to perform an exorcism, but it does teach us a lot about humanity, about ourselves and how we try to change. It also teaches us a lot about the power of Christ that can bring permanent healing. So let's look at some of the ways that we try to change. And we're going to look at, first, temporary relief. It's what we try to do, right? It's when we have an illness or some other problem in our lives, we really just want a quick fix. We want to get over this struggle. We want to get over this cold. We want our stomach to stop hurting. So you name it. We just want to be done with it, and then we want to move on. We want to be able to take some medicine and move on. So we go to the doctor, and we want something that's going to deal with the symptoms, Or we go to a therapist or a counselor, and we want to be able to get some tools to help us better cope. And yes, these do have power to change. Jesus does not deny that here in this text. He recognizes that as human beings, we are multidimensional, like we said earlier. We're physical, we're social, we're psychological, we're spiritual beings. And Jesus recognized that some of the followers of the Pharisees here in the text, they were able to cast out demons. But look down at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. And it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So here's the deal. Sure, they might have been able to cast out demons. Maybe they had group therapy. Maybe they had given the man or woman some new habits or something in their life to help clean them up. But here's the deal. We see people that have slept their house clean. Their life was in order. Everything looked normal again. Everything was great. But they were still empty. So the evil spirit returns and brings back seven more, and they are worse off this time than they were before. Now, what does that even mean? What Jesus is saying here is this. There are many ways to change. You don't have to come to Christ to stop being an alcoholic. You don't have to be a Christian to fix your marriage. You're a multidimensional person, and there are many ways to bring about change. But if there is still a void in your soul, you are going to end up worse than before. It's like this. Let's just say you pull out of here today and you look down at your car and you see the check engine light has come on. You think, oh, great. Now I got to go to a mechanic. I got to have them run that diagnostic test and they're going to say it costs this much. Unless you use us, then it's free and we're just going to charge you more. So it still gets paid for, you know. But you look down and you see this and you think, great. So you go to a mechanic and the mechanic says, hey, yeah, I can fix it. And he goes underneath the dashboard and you see him clip the wire and immediately the light goes off. Are you going to go, excellent, great, the check engine light isn't on anymore? Of course not. You're going to go, thank you, I'm going to go see another mechanic. Why? Because all he has done is dealt with the symptom. He has not fixed the car at all. He has not gotten into the heart of the engine to figure out what has taken place. Let me look at it another way. 
Let's just say that there is a, you go shopping at Target this afternoon, and there is a child that is freaking out on the floor of the aisle, wanting some candy. It's none of our children, of course. But there is a child that is freaking out, really wanting some candy, making a huge scene. So what does the parent do? The parent grabs a piece of candy and gives it to the kid, and voila, the behavior has changed. Right? For now. See, we often want to heal in the temporary and we don't think about the long-term, the long-term effects that this might have. Let me give you another illustration. For those of you that are men, when you grew up, you were probably told at some point to man up and stop crying. No one likes to look like they don't have it all together, right? No one wants to be an emotional mess, so what does this child do? This child pulls himself up by his bootstraps, and he holds in those tears. And over time, he develops self-control to hold in those tears. Why? Because he does not want to appear weak. So rather than being driven by an appropriate display of emotions and recognizing that it is okay for him to cry as a man, as a human being, he bottles it up. And can I say that he is driven by or possessed by controlled by the thought, I cannot appear weak. Now, let me ask you what's going to happen to that child later when he grows up. What if this child gets married? Do you think it's going to be okay to not show weakness inside of your marriage? Can I say that any of these illustrations, if we follow them past the temporary, might end up seven times worse than the initial? You see, this is what we want to do, though. We want to just deal with the temporary. And this text is telling us that there are many sources for change, for power, but all of those, except one, all of them except one, provide superficial treatment, temporary treatment. So what possesses you? And we're given a better option Not just temporary relief, but permanent healing. Jesus says, unless you are possessed by me, you will be possessed by something else. Because the human soul is a vacuum. Now we look at that word possessed negatively, but when you are completely given over to Christ, when you are completely surrendered to him, it is anything but negative. Now Christ is telling us here that he is the only one that can help us change thoroughly. Permanently, Just a finger, he says, and I can destroy. He says, I have lived the life that you cannot live. I have died the death that you should have died. And I was raised to life that you might have everlasting life. And that everlasting life starts right now. Does that mean that you won't struggle? Does that mean that you won't battle depression or anxiety? Does that mean that you will be healed and that your bank account will be full? No, of course not. But it does mean that you will have permanent healing. A healing that you and your soul need. A healing that works on the whole being, not just working on temporary symptoms. We sang just a moment ago, it is because of his great love that we are not overcome. You see, there's a healing that works here permanent healing and the power of the spirit works in us throughout our life to bring about change and growth the scriptures tell us don't be afraid of the one that can kill the body 
Because after that, they can do no more. But be afraid of the one that can destroy both body and soul. So we're told in this text, look down at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Christ is calling out to all of us that read this text, to all of us here today that hear this. I'm coming to you with power. Permanent healing. But we cannot comfort ourselves so quickly with a warm, fuzzy feeling of Jesus and think that because we're in a neutral spot with him that it's okay. You know what? Those feelings will damn us as quickly as if we were bowing down to Satan himself. So here, Christ, only months before the cross, is saying, you are either in the kingdom of light or you are in the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. There is no possibility for neutrality. So Christ today is calling to each of us, come to him. You say, well, I did that 25 years ago. But we don't stop doing it. It's a daily thing. Come to him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to him and taste of this amazing power, the power of the cross. And for those of us that are in Christ, that know that we are secure in him, we can be refreshed as we come to this table today and energized as we come to this feast that speaks to our soul, telling us again and again who we are in Christ. And those great things that he has done for us. That is identity. That is real joy. Brought on by power beyond anything that we can imagine. By what are we possessed today? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We praise you for your generosity for showing us your love through this story. Lord, encourage and challenge our hearts now, even as we take of your table. May we receive your grace and your power in ways that we may not have before. In Jesus' name, amen.